Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 43 of the show. It's been uh, about a week and a half, almost two weeks since we've had an episode, so we have a massive episode to get into. We'll get you caught up on uh, the past couple golf tournaments in the PGA Tour, and of course the NHL and NBA playoffs are... Uh, now into the second round series. We'll get you caught up on all of those series as well. So we're going to jump right into the PGA Tour. A couple weekends ago was the Charles Schwab Challenge. That was at the Colonial Country Club in Fort Worth, Texas. It was a par 70. Distance uh, was only 7,209 yards, which was much shorter than Kiowa Island was the week before. Uh, Charles Schwab Challenge is but it's the second longest tenured event on the PGA schedule behind only the Masters. It's been on the schedule for the last 76 years. Uh, Colonial's a tough course. It's got tight fairways, plenty of dog legs. And, uh, man, we had a great tournament. Uh, the winner uh, was Jason Kokrak with a score of 14 under par. This was actually his second win in his last 17 starts. It was also his second win of the season which made him join Bryson DeChambeau and Stuart Sink as the other two-time winners this year. And Kokrak just came out red hot. Uh, He fired a pair of 5-under 65s to sit at 10-under heading into the weekend, and uh, he was actually paired with uh, local boy Jordan Spieth, the final 36 holes of that tournament. Uh, Kokrak shot a 4-under 66 on Saturday, and then uh, even par on Sunday, which was actually good enough to win him that red plaid jacket. Second place was Jordan Spieth at 12 under par, just two shots back of Kokrak. And the only golfer to have a better start to the weekend than Kokrak was Jordan Spieth. He came out with a lights-out 7 under 63 in the opening round, followed that up with a pair of 4 under 66s on Friday and Saturday, and he led after every round of the tournament except the one that mattered, which was the obviously Sunday's round, where he shot a 3-over 73. But that second-place finish for Spieth just adds to his list of top five finishes here lately, and he is unquestionably back to his former major-winning self as a top-ranked golfer in the world. And I would not be surprised if he did, in fact, win another major championship this year. But we had a four-way tie for third place at the Charles Schwab Challenge. Uh, Four golfers were all at 10 under par, which was two shots back of Spieth and four shots back of Kokrak. The first golfer at 10 under par was Charlie Hoffman. Now, Hoffman shot a 1-over 71 on Thursday and a 2-over 72 on Saturday. And then he answered it with a uh, 5-under 65 on uh, uh, Sunday, but 
it was his eight under round of 62 on Friday that really kind of moved him into that conversation. So he was uh, not looking good heading into the weekend, but Friday, uh, well, Friday's round kind of helped him out because he was over par on, on Thursday, but another solid finish for Hoffman. Uh, the other golf, the next golfer that was at T3 position was Patton Kazir. And he just played another great weekend of golf. This was his second consecutive T3 finish after he grabbed a T3 at the Byron Nelson a couple weeks ago. So Patton Kazir likes uh, some Texas golf. He was actually at 8-under heading into the weekend, then went 1-over 71 on Saturday, closed with a 3-under 67. That got him up to 3rd. Sebastian Munoz was also at 10-under par, and he was another one who had a good weekend. And like Kazir, he was at 8-under uh, heading into the weekend. And then Munoz shot even par 70 on Saturday and 2-under 68 on Sunday, which really didn't do anything other than push him up into that T3 range. The final golfer at T3 was Ian Poulter. And when I went back and looked at Poulter's scorecards for the Charles Schwab Challenge, I could not believe that he wasn't higher on the final leaderboard. Uh, he had a pair of two under 68s on Thursday's opening round, Sunday's final round, and then had an even par round of 70 on Friday. But he went six under 64 on Saturday. And with those scores, I just I felt like he should have been a little higher uh, on the leaderboard. But I am sure that he is appreciative of that T3 finish. Now let's check out Rick's picks to click from the Charles Schwab Challenge. The first one I gave you was Justin Rose. He came into this thing ranked number 41 in the world. It was his eighth appearance at Colonial, and he won this thing back in 2018. And he finished T3 last year uh, at Colonial. So he's historically played well at this course, and he ended up finishing at four under par for the tournament, which was a T20. He had a good solid weekend. It wasn't bad. It wasn't great. Uh, he opened with a pair of two under 68s, then followed that up with a one under 69. And he closed with a one under seven, uh, one over 71, and that kept him inside the top 20. So I did click on Justin Rose. My second pick to click was Abraham Answer. He came in ranked number 19 in the world, and he came in also one of the hotter players on tour. He had three consecutive top 10 finishes, and he finished T8th at Kiowa Island the week before, second at Quail Hollow week before that, and uh, fifth at Innisbrook uh, week prior to that. So uh, he had not finished any worse than T26 in his last nine starts. So he was coming in super hot to this thing, and he ended up finishing at five under par, which was good for T14. Answer's first two rounds were very lackluster in this tournament. He opened with an even par 70, shot a one over 71 on Friday. So he was at one over heading into the weekend, made the cut by one shot, and then did his damage on the weekend rounds where he shot a pair of three under 67s to climb up into that T14 spot. So I did click on answer as well. My final pick to click was Colin Morikawa. He came in ranked number five in the world. It was his second trip to Colonial. He actually lost here last year in a playoff hole to Daniel Berger, giving him a solo second-place finish. Now, Morikawa also was at five under for the tournament, T14, tied with answer, 
And Morikawa had four different scores this weekend. He opened with a one under 69, followed that up with a four under 66. Saturday was brutal. He went two over 72, and then evened that out on Sunday with a two under 68. So he played even par golf over the weekend rounds, which kept him at five under. And I did click on Morikawa. So I was three for three on my picks to click at the Charles Schwab Challenge. So fast forward to last weekend's tournament, which was the Memorial Tournament, and that was at Muirfield Village Golf Club in Dublin, Ohio. It was a par 72. The distance was 7,543 yards. Muirfield Village, of course, is known as the house that Jack built. Of course, Jack Nicholas, best golfer of all time. And Muirfield Village... Last year, it actually hosted two consecutive PGA Tour events, the Workday Charity Open World Golf Championship and, of course, the Memorial Tournament. And it was the first time in PGA Tour history that back-to-back events were played at the same course. Now, in the final round of the Memorial Tournament last year, they started some renovations. And part of those renovations or or improvements to the golf course, they uh, changed the irrigation system they rebuilt the fairways and the greenside bunkers along with uh, reconstruction of the greens. They added over 140 trees in various spots. And the overall distance of the course was about 100 yards longer after they got done renovating it. So I, I mention all of that to say that the course played very different than it has before. Now, there was actually a weather delay in round one, which eventually shut play down. And that, of course, caused a delay in finishing rounds one and two. The third round is where they were finally able to get caught up after the cut was made. And after they got caught up, uh, that end of the third round, John Rahm was the leader at 18 under par, which was actually a six-shot lead over Patrick Cantlay and Colin Morikawa. But immediately after the third round, John, like he hadn't even gotten barely off the green yet, John Rahm was notified by PGA officials that he had tested positive for COVID, which is interesting because he had produced a negative test after his first round, and then his test at the end of the second round, just prior to the start of the third round, which was on the same day, right? This was all on Saturday when he finished the second round, started his third round. That's the one that popped positive, but they didn't have those results until he had already played a full round of golf. So, very interesting turn of events. This this forced John Rahm to withdraw from the tournament, obviously. And uh, that was a huge blow to Rahm. He, you know, released a statement. He took it in stride. Um, you know, sucks because he, he, all Rahm really had to do on Sunday was play even par golf. Hell, he probably could have played, uh, uh, you know, one or two over and still been the winner with a six-shot lead. But at the end of this thing... We actually had a tie at 13 under par uh, after the 72nd hole. And it was Patrick Cantlay and Colin Morikawa that were tied. and they So they replayed the par 4 18th. And in that playoff hole, Colin Morikawa put his tee shot right down the middle of the fairway while Patrick Cantlay slung his out to the right rough, which is where he had just shot it uh, on the 18th hole in the regular round. Uh, but both of their second shots ended up in that front left greenside bunker. Uh, They both successfully chipped out. Cantlay's 
chip was uh, it ended up 11 feet 9 inches from the hole and Morikawa's ended up 6 feet from the hole Morikawa was away so he obviously putted first and he ended up drilling that almost 12 foot putt which left it to Morikawa uh, he makes it they have a second playoff hole he misses it Cantlay's your winner and Morikawa ended up missing that six-foot putt to give Cantlay the win at 13 under par. Now, this was Patrick Cantlay's second win of the season, which made him the fourth golfer to hit that mark this season. And it was also Patrick Cantlay's second win at the Memorial Tournament in the last three years because he won it back in 2019. This win also moved Patrick Cantlay up to the first position in the FedEx Cup standings and uh, kind of a stranglehold on that at the moment. Now, Cantlay was sitting at 8-under heading into the weekend, then shot a 4-under on Saturday to move him into a tie for the 54-hole lead after John Rahm had to withdraw. Now, Cantlay only shot 1-under on Sunday, but that was, of course, good enough to force that playoff hole. I think Cantlay birdied 16 to tie Morikawa at 13-under. And speaking of Morikawa, he was obviously your second-place finisher. He came out hot. He was the leader after 18 holes with a 6-under 66. And then he cooled off a bit in round two where he just shot even par. Then he had another 6-under 66 on Saturday to put him at 12-under, which, of course, tied Cantlay after Rahm's withdrawal. And then Morikawa, of course, like Cantlay, went 1-under 71 on Sunday. So that was your your playoff hole. Your third place finisher was Scotty Scheffler at 11 under par. Now Scheffler, interesting thing about that, he was only at six under heading into the weekend and uh, only uh, a shot. Uh, he only shot one under 71 on Saturday. So he was sitting at seven under through three rounds, which was uh, five shots back. He ended up shooting two under seven, uh, two under round of 70 on Sunday, which was good enough for a solo third. Uh, another solid finish for Scheffler. Fourth place was Brendan Grace at 10 under par. Another solid tournament for Grace. Grace is just a guy that uh, he always tends to finish sneaky high in these higher profile tournaments like majors and memorial and WGC events. Uh, he was only at four under heading into the weekend, but... He uh, finished the weekend with rounds of uh, 67 and 71 to end up at that solo fourth-place position. Fifth place was Patrick Reed at 8-under par. And you wouldn't have guessed that he was going to finish like that after Friday's round. He was only at 2-under par after Friday's round uh, heading into the weekend. But he played great golf on Saturday and Sunday, shot a pair of 3-under 69s, to move up to a solo fifth-place finish. Now, since we did not have an episode last week, there were no Rick's picks to click for the Memorial. But we fast-forward to this weekend's tournament, which is the Palmetto Championship. That is held at the Congaree Golf Club in Ridgeland, South Carolina. It's a par 71. The distance is 7,655 yards. Just a big course, a massive course. And... Um, this event was originally scheduled to be the RBC Canadian Open, but of course, due to Canada's COVID border restrictions at the moment, this event had to be moved to the U.S., so they brought it to South Carolina, which is the third PGA Tour event this year to be played in South Carolina, 
behind the RBC Heritage and, of course, the PGA Championship just a couple weeks ago. This course, the Congaree Golf Club, it's a long course. It's going to challenge the big hitters. The course features a 645-yard par 5, and then there are two par 4s on the front nine holes that are both longer than 520 yards. So you're going to get out the big stick to uh, do well in this tournament. But let's check out Rick's picks to click for this weekend's Palmetto Championship. The first one I'll give you is Garrick Higo. He's ranked number 54 in the world. And to be honest with you, I had no idea who the hell this guy was until this week. He finished T64 in his PGA Tour debut at Kiowa Island a couple weeks ago in the PGA Championship. Prior to that, he'd been playing on the European Tour. Now, his last four starts on the European Tour included two wins, a T4, and a T8. So that is some damn good golf. Uh, That probably will translate over here. Now, I would not be surprised if Higo misses the cut, but I also wouldn't be surprised if he finished inside the top 10. So... Now that he got his PGA Tour debut out of the way, I like for Higo to finish inside the top 25. My second pick to click is Matthew Fitzpatrick. He's ranked number 21 in the world. Fitzpatrick has missed two cuts in his last three starts, including last weekend at the Memorial. But in his last 11 starts, minus the two missed cuts, so out of his last nine starts in which he's made the cut, He's only finished outside the top 25 once, and that was the T-34. He's got an accurate driver, and he's a phenomenal putter. Both of those will come in handy uh, here in South Carolina. My third pick to click is Dustin Johnson. He's ranked number one in the world. Top-ranked golfer in the world. uh, Hasn't played uh, in a couple weeks. He missed the cut at Kiowa Island, and... Uh, has not really been playing great golf prior to that, but he's from South Carolina. This is the third time he's played a South Carolina course this season, and he, more so than anyone else, maybe outside of Brooks Kepka in this tournament, has the distance to handle these longer holes that I just talked about. So in a below-average field of players, there are a few top-ranked golfers playing. Of course, I mentioned DJ and Brooks, uh, but the uh, overall field is pretty lackluster, And due to that, I think DJ's got a solid chance to finish inside the top 25. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League, and we'll get you caught up on the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, Just to recap, I ended up going 5-3 and in my first-round predictions. Now, prior to last week's episode, or at last week's episode, there was only one series that had not been complete, and that was in the Scotia North Division featured the number one Toronto Maple Leafs against the number four Montreal Canadiens. It went to a game seven. That was right after the episode a week and a half ago got uh, released. But in that game seven, it was in Toronto. Montreal was able to muster a 2-0 lead in the game, and they secured the victory with an empty netter. Toronto would add a late goal to make it a 3-1 final, now, the Leafs outshot the Canadians 31-23, to but that was not good enough to keep them from totally collapsing and blowing a 3-1 to series lead. So Montreal won that series in seven games. They moved on to play the Winnipeg Jets. Now, just to recap, uh, 
uh, in the Discover Central Division, the top-seeded Carolina Hurricanes played the number three seed Tampa Bay Lightning. I picked the Tampa Bay Lightning to win that second-round series in six games. Well, game one was close. Uh, Tampa Bay got the game-winning goal with just over seven minutes left. It was a horrible goal for Alex Nedeljkovic, the the Hurricanes goalie, to let in. But uh, nonetheless, Tampa Bay took a a game one win, and then Tampa Bay also copied that same formula in game two, where they won by the same score of two to one. And the interesting fact about game two was that Carolina outshot Tampa Bay 32 to 15, so more than two to one in shots. And somehow Tampa was still able to win. And this was a clear example that the shots are about quality instead of quantity. So Tampa Bay jumped out to a 2-0 lead. Game 3 was do or die for the Hurricanes. They ended up coming back, uh, coming in clutch, really. Jordan Stahl ripped one uh, past Andre Vasilevsky in overtime to get the Hurricanes back in the series. So 2-1 after three games. Game four was just an absolute score fest. The second period alone featured eight goals, uh, four by each team. But at the end of the game, Tampa Bay came out on top six to four. That gave them a three to one series lead heading back home. And in that game four, Nikita Kucherov, Steven Stamkos both had two goals and an assist for the Lightning. And in that game five on home ice, the Lightning smelled blood in the water uh, Andre Vasilevsky did what Andre Vasilevsky does. He stopped all 29 of the Hurricane shots to propel the Lightning to a 2-0 win in that Game 5 and a 4-1 series-clinching victory. So I did correctly predict the Lightning to win that series. Now, in the Mass Mutual East Division... The number three seed Boston Bruins taking on the number four seeded New York Islanders. Before the series started, I predicted that the Bruins would win the series in six games. Well, this was the uh, first series to get going in the second round. The Bruins actually got a 5-2 victory in game one thanks to a hat trick by David Pasternak. And then game two, Boston got out to an early lead but the Islanders came back with three goals unanswered to take a 3-1 to lead into the third. Uh, Boston scored two goals five minutes apart in that third period to send the game to overtime. And in overtime, Islanders forward Casey Sezikis found the back of the net to win the game and even the series at a game apiece. Game three was also an overtime game, and it did not take long to find a winner there. Three and a half minutes into that game three, Boston's Brad Marchand came skating down the left side, ripped just a wicked wrist shot. Uh, I mean, he was on the far hash marks on the on the left boards, and he shot this thing very far top right corner of the net. Just an unbelievable shot. Uh, I don't even think Marchand knew it went in until he uh, skated an extra stride or two. But nonetheless, it went in. The Bruins won the game, took a 2-1 to series lead. Game four, Boston scored the opening goal uh, early in the second period was the the opening goal, but that was all the scoring they could manage because the Islanders came back with four unanswered goals. They won game uh, game four, four to one, 
even the series at two games apiece. Now, back in Boston for game five, the Bruins, yet again, got the first goal of the game, but the Islanders, very similarly to game four, answered uh, with three unanswered goals between the second and third periods. They hung on for a 5-4 victory and a 3-2 series lead. Boston outshot New York 44-19 in that game and lost 5-4. That is just atrocious. The Islanders had five goals on 19 shots, and Boston could only manage four goals on 44 shots. So again, quantity over quality with shots. But that series currently sits, Boston uh, is down three games to two to the Islanders. So my prediction of Boston winning is definitely in jeopardy there. Now in the uh, Honda West division, this has been just an absolute barn burner of a series. Number one Colorado Avalanche against the number two Vegas Golden Knights. I predicted that the Avalanche would win the series in seven games. These were the top two teams in the NHL in the regular season. Game one started out rough and it was rowdy. There were 74 combined penalty minutes between the two teams. Uh, Vegas started goalie Robin Leonard, uh, which proved to be a mistake because the Avs, they had a uh, week off from their series sweep of St. Louis in the first round. They came out flying. Uh, They ended up coasting to a 7-1 victory to take an early series lead. Nathan McKinnon had a goal and two more assists to lead the way for Colorado. And Vegas forward Ryan Reeves got a two-game suspension for a match penalty that he received late in the third period of Game 1. So without Ryan Reeves, Game 2 was actually much closer than Game 1. This was more along the lines of what we expected to see in every game this series between these two teams. Vegas outshot Colorado 41-25, but the game went into overtime. And just two minutes into overtime... Miko Rantanen for the Avalanche ripped an absolute snipe of a wrister on the power play for the game-winning goal to give the Avalanche a 2-0 series lead. So the series shifted back over to Vegas in Game 3, basically a must-win for Vegas. And the game went back and forth. Colorado was leading late in the third period. But then Vegas got two goals 45 seconds apart to take a 3-2 lead in the game, which ended up being the final score. So the series became 2-1 Colorado. Vegas outshot Colorado 43-20 in that game. Uh, They did win, so um, the shots did prove to be substantial. But Game 4 was a reversal of the blowout that we saw in Game 1. This time, Vegas was on the dishing end of the blowout. They erupted for a 5-1 win in Game 4 thanks to a Jonathan Marcheseau hat trick to even the series at two games apiece. And yet again, Vegas outshot Colorado 35-18. So that seems to be a theme in this series. But then we fast forward to Game 5, uh, which is a, it was a close game. Again, uh, just another fantastic game between these two top-ranked teams. And it went into overtime, Game 5 did. And this has been the theme in the playoffs this year, quick overtime games. Uh, 50 seconds into overtime of Game 5 here, Vegas's Mark Stone had a breakaway and ended up ripping a shot 
past Philip Grubauer, the Avs goalie, to give the Vegas Knights a 3-2 series lead as they head back to Vegas for Game 6. So, as this series sits, Vegas is up three games to two. My Avalanche and 7 pick uh, is definitely in jeopardy, and the only way the Avs will win this series is in seven games. Now, the final series in the NHL to get caught up on is in the Scotia North Division. That's the number three Winnipeg Jets against the number four Montreal Canadiens. Now, Winnipeg was fresh off of a first-round sweep, so they had some time off. They got to host Montreal, who played a lengthy seven-game series against Toronto. Game one, uh, you could tell Montreal carried that momentum from that seven-game series because they came out and they won five to three. Now, the main play of this game, that most talked about play, was when Montreal forward Jake Evans was wrapping the puck around the net for an empty net goal uh, with just under a minute left in the third. I think there was 58 seconds left. Winnipeg forward Mark Shifley came flying down the ice, basically from end to end at full speed, and absolutely leveled Jake Evans, knocking him unconscious, like right as the puck went in the net. So the empty net goal scored, but Jake Evans had to be stretchered off the ice. It was a scary-looking hit. Me, personally, I didn't really see a whole lot wrong. Um, Shifley hit him with his shoulder. He didn't jump into him. Uh, They hit him with a a charging penalty. And after the game, it was announced that uh, the NHL suspended Mark Shifley for four games, which was absolutely crucial. Uh, Shifley is one of the best players for the Jets. So for them to be without him for four games just uh, was not looking good for Winnipeg as this series went on. Going over to game two, it was clear that Shifley's absence from the Winnipeg lineup was a huge absence at that. This was, of course, the first game without Shifley, and man, they missed him. Uh, Montreal's Tyler Toffoli scored a shorthanded goal in the second, which was the only goal of the game. It was Carey Price's ninth career playoff shutout. He stopped all 30 of Winnipeg's shots. Montreal won the game 1-0 to take a 2-0 series lead, winning both games in Winnipeg. Now, the, the Canadians are getting the Carey Price from his Vesna winning year some seven seasons ago. Uh, he is playing out of his mind, and he is helping carry that Montreal team as far as they've they've come so far game three it was a must win obviously for the Jets they were still without Mark Shifley Montreal came out flying uh first game at home in this series they got out to a three nothing lead the Jets did score a goal but Montreal won five to one take a three nothing series lead Carey Price again stopped 26 to 27 shots for Montreal and um just looking like a you know, all-world goalie that he has been in his career. So game four was do or die for the Winnipeg Jets. Montreal had 42 shots. Winnipeg had 16 in game four. A must win. Do or die. Winnipeg only managed 16 shots and gave up 42. But Jets goalie Connor Hellebuck kept them in the game. 
It went into overtime, believe it or not, despite that shot difference, and about a minute and a half into overtime, again, keeping that quick overtime theme going, Montreal rookie Cole Caulfield had a beautiful saucer pass over to Tyler Toffoli, who buried it for the winner, game four, and a series sweeping win for the Canadians. Now, this was, so Montreal won the series uh, in four games. I had predicted, uh, I wrote it down before the series started. I said the Winnipeg Jets would win the series in six games, so I'm incorrect in that. Now, that was obviously pre-Shifley suspension, but uh, so I was incorrect in that. This was the, the, the last series to get started in the second round, but it was the first one to finish. So quick turnaround. This series sweep was Montreal's 22nd series sweep in franchise history, which is the most in NHL history behind or in front of Boston and Detroit with 14 and Chicago with nine. Now, Montreal has, at the end of game four, Montreal had gone the second longest stretch without trailing a playoff game in NHL history. So Montreal, they have not trailed in a game since game four of the series against Toronto. So their shutout, or their not shutout streak, but streak of not losing or not playing from behind is currently at 437 game minutes and 53 seconds, which trails only the 1960 Montreal Canadiens streak of uh, 400 and almost 90 minutes. So they're about 50 minutes behind that of not trailing. So Montreal is going to have little extended rest being the first series to finish. So, uh, man, that is is crazy that Montreal, they they came in as the last seed in the Scotia North Division. I didn't think they'd get by Toronto. Not only did they get by Toronto, they got by Winnipeg. So Montreal is now in the conference finals. Uh, Just a crazy, crazy start so far to the NHL playoffs. We're uh, almost halfway done. we got a couple series that could wrap up here in the next couple days. Uh, so we'll definitely stay tuned on that. And we'll get you uh, caught up on that in next week's episode. But we'll move over to the NBA, uh, the NBA playoffs. Last episode, uh, we hadn't recapped all of the series because they weren't the first round series because they weren't all done. In fact, the only series to finish was the Milwaukee Bucks, Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference, where Milwaukee swept the Heat four to zero. So we'll stay in the Eastern Conference, get you caught up. The number one seed Philadelphia 76ers took on the number eight seed Washington Wizards. I predicted that the 76ers would win in seven games. And last week we had got you caught up through, or uh, last episode we got you caught up through three games. Game four, uh, being down three games to none, the Wizards finally showed some signs of life. Bradley Beal dropped 27 points. Uh, Rui Hachimura had a double-double with 20 points, 13 boards, and the Wizards ended up winning their first game of the series. Uh, Joel Embiid for the 76ers, he only played 11 minutes before he hurt his right knee in that game and left the game. Uh, An MRI showed that he had a small lateral meniscus tear, which caused him to miss Game 5. So in that Game 5 without Joel Embiid, it was no Embiid, no problem, because the 76ers just rolled to a 129-112 victory to win the series in five games. Philly got 30 points from Seth Curry, 28 from Tobias Harris, 
and uh, that was enough for a 4-1 to series victory. Uh, so I correctly predicted that the 76ers would win that series. The other series, the number two Brooklyn Nets against the number seven Boston Celtics. I predicted Brooklyn would win in six games. We had got you caught up through the first three games on last episode. Game four was an absolute blowout for the Nets. They won 141 to 126. They got a combined 104 points from their big three of Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden. Kevin Durant had 42, Kyrie Irving 39, James Harden had 23 points, 18 assists in that game. And those 104 points from the big three were tied for the most points by a trio of teammates in a playoff game in NBA history. The other other two teams or other two trios to do it were the 1986 Atlanta Hawks with Dominique Wilkins, Spud Webb, and Randy Whitman, and the 1973 Boston Celtics with John Havlicek, JoJo White, and Dave Cohens. So again, that big three was just absolutely uh, on point. Gave the Nets a 3-1 to one series lead. Uh, game five, well, back it up. There was another fan incident there at the end of game four. Boston fan threw a water bottle at Kyrie Irving as he was leaving the floor, which uh, caused the scene. The fan got arrested, and uh, that's just uh, like the fourth or fifth fan incident in the NBA uh, within the first week and a half of the playoffs. But uh, Boston ended up getting 40 points from Jason Tatum in that game four, but that was uh, not enough to hold off the big threes, 104 points. Now, game five, the Nets just came out, took care of business. Um, Jason Tatum had 32 points for the Celtics, but uh, Celtics ended up losing 123-109. to James Harden led the way in that game for the Nets with 34 points. Kyrie, 25. Kevin Durant, 24. So you could see it was pretty clear that uh, the big three, uh, you know, again, took care of business and, uh, you know, basically carried the Nets just as we suspected they would. Uh, I already talked about the Bucks and the Heat. The Bucks swept the Heat in four games. Clean sweep there. But the final first-round Eastern Conference series was the number four New York Knicks and the number five Atlanta Hawks. I predicted that the Knicks would win in seven games, and when we left off, I'd got you through the first three games of that series. Well, the Hawks ended up taking a commanding 3-1 to series lead after a 113-96 victory in game four. Trey Young, of course, led the way for the Hawks with 27 points. Julius Randle chipped in 23 points and 10 rebounds for the Knicks. So game five was back at Madison Square Garden. The Knicks were on the brink of elimination, so you were assuming that you were going to get a better effort from the Knicks than what was given. The Hawks would go on to finish the Knicks off 103-89 to to take the series four games to one. Now, the interesting thing about this game is that it was capped off by a Trey Young three-pointer from basically mid-court and after hitting the three Trey Young took a bow at mid-court this was of course in retaliation to the New York Knicks fan who spit on him back in game two Trey Young finished with 36 points in that series clinching win so the Hawks won that series four games to one now over in the Western Conference 
top-seeded Utah Jazz took on the number eight seed Memphis Grizzlies. I predicted that the Jazz would win in six games. Well, they won this series in five games. Utah just, uh, we had got through the first three games on last episode. Utah just kept it going in game four. They won 120-113 to 113 to take a 3-1 to one series lead. Now, remember, Memphis actually won game one of this series. So Utah won three in a row. John Morant, Dylan Brooks, and Jaron Jackson Jr. all had over 20 points for the Grizzlies in the loss. So their starters came to play, but the Jazz just uh, too much to handle. And same thing in game five. Uh, Donovan Mitchell had 30 points, 10 assists. Utah closed out the Grizzlies 126 to 110. Rudy Gobert chipped in with 23 points and 15 rebounds. Uh, for the Jazz, Jordan Clarkson had 24 points off the bench. Just shows you that depth there for the Jazz. Uh, again, John Morant, Dylan Brooks for the Grizzlies, both had 27 points in the losing effort. And those those kids are turning into legit stars uh, for Memphis, and their their future definitely looks bright. So I was correct in the Jazz series. Now, the other Western Conference series, number two, Phoenix Suns, number seven, Los Angeles Lakers, the defending NBA champions. I picked them to win in six games, and this series was pretty surprising. And I recorded last episode while game four was being played. The Suns were winning at the time and ended up hanging on for a 100-92 to victory to even that series at two games. And... All five Phoenix starters were in double figures in that game. Devin Booker led the way with 17 points. DeAndre Ayton had 14 points, 17 rebounds. LeBron James had 25 points and 10 rebounds in that game. Anthony Davis played the first half but hurt his groin, did not play in the second half. He only finished with six points, which meant that LeBron and AD only combined for 31 points, which they did that same thing in game one where they lost. So it was obvious that if the Lakers were going to win, uh, they needed more points than 31 combined from LeBron and Anthony Davis. Now, fast forward to game five, which was back in Phoenix. It was an absolute disaster for the Lakers. Uh, Anthony Davis did not play because of that groin injury, and the Lakers only shot 34% from the field. Devin Booker did his thing, dropped 30 points for Phoenix, and Phoenix just absolutely waxed the Lakers 115-85 to to win by 30, take a 3-2 series lead. And uh, uh, Game 5 was just an absolutely atrocious piece of work. That game was in Phoenix, by the way. So Game 6 went to L.A., was a must-win for the Lakers. They were on the brink, obviously. Anthony Davis returned to the lineup, but he only played five minutes, and uh, that was all she wrote for the Lakers. The Suns just got a Herculean effort from Devin Booker, 47 points, 11 rebounds. The Suns finished out the Lakers 113-100, to and uh, meaning that this was LeBron James' first ever first-round playoff exit. So he's been in the playoffs almost every year of his career. This was the first time that uh, he's lost in the first round. So I was incorrect in the Lakers pick. But the uh, couple other series in the Western Conference, number three, Denver Nuggets, number six, Portland Trailblazers. I picked the upset of Portland in seven games. 
but the Nuggets ended up winning the series in six games to make that pick incorrect. And uh, we, we got through four games uh, on last week's episode. Game five went into double overtime. Uh, Denver ended up winning 147 to 140. Damian Lillard, Portland Trailblazers point guard, he broke Klay Thompson's record for the most three-pointers in an NBA game, NBA playoff game with 12. Uh, Lillard would go on to finish with 55 points, 10 assists, just ridiculous, especially in a losing effort. And then, of course, on the other side, you have uh, Nikola Jokic for the Denver Nuggets. He had 38 points and 11 rebounds. Game six was another back-and-forth game. Plenty of lead changes, uh, and in the end, Denver was able to hold off Portland for a 126-115 series-clinching win. Nikola Jokic had 36 points for Denver in that win. Uh, Portland got 28 points, 13 assists from Dame Lillard, who ended up shooting one of nine. He made one out of nine field goals in that fourth quarter, which probably ended up costing Portland a shot at a a game seven, but nonetheless, the Nuggets won. Made that picked in pick incorrect for me. Final first round series, the playoffs. The uh, number four L.A. Clippers took on the number five Dallas Mavericks. Now I picked the Clippers to win the series in six games. The series went seven games after Dallas jumped out to a two nothing series lead. Now the Clippers. Uh, this series had only made it three games uh, on last week's episode. The Clippers came out in game four. They shot almost 40% from the three-point line, and the Mavs did the opposite. They shot just over 16% from three. Luka Doncic only had 19 points. Uh, after the game, he admitted he played terrible. Clippers won big, 106-81 to even the series. Uh, the road team had won all four games at this point. Series went back to Los Angeles. And in game five, Dallas kept the road road team success alive. They came out swinging. Clippers would come back and make it close late in the game, but Dallas hung on for a huge game five victory. Doncic went berserk with 42 points, 14 assists, eight rebounds. And they got some secondary scoring as well from Tim Hardaway Jr. with 20 points. Uh, So, series went back to Dallas for game six. And uh, the Clippers ended up coming out on top of that one. Kawhi Leonard had 45 points in that game six. And the Clippers win in game six made this the first series in NBA playoff history that the road team won the first six games to start the series. So you go back to Los Angeles for Game 7. It was looking good for the Mavs until it wasn't. Uh, Los Angeles ended up winning the game 126-111. to Luka Doncic again, 46 points, 14 assists in the losing effort. Kristaps Porzingis finally showed that he had a pulse with 16 points, 11 rebounds. Kawhi Leonard had 28 points, 10 boards for the Clippers. And they broke the streak of the road team winning all the games in the series. Clippers won the series in seven games. I was correct in that prediction. So I ended up uh, four and four in my predictions. Uh, I got the 76ers, the Nets, the Bucks, 
the Jazz, and the Clippers. So I guess five and three. I went five and three in that NBA first round, just like the NHL first round. But uh, we've already started the second round of the NBA playoff series. So uh, before we start the recap on that, this is the first time since 2010 that the NBA Finals are not going to feature either Steph Curry or LeBron James. So we will get some fresh faces in the NBA Finals, but we are still a ways out from that. In the Eastern Conference, the first series, the Philadelphia 76ers and the Atlanta Hawks. All right, Uh, I'm picking the 76ers to win in six games. Game one, uh, Joel Embiid came back for Philadelphia after that meniscus tear, uh, but Trey Young was too much to handle for the 76ers. He went off for 35 points, 10 assists, to help propel Atlanta to a game one, 128-124 win. Game two, Philadelphia came out, answered the bell. Joel Embiid on uh, one and a half knees was an absolute beast. 40 points, 13 rebounds. Philly even the series with a 118-102 win. Trey Young only had 21 in that one. So uh, the other Eastern Conference series, the number two Brooklyn Nets and the number three Milwaukee Bucks. I'm picking the Brooklyn Nets to win in six games. Game one, James Harden only played one minute of this game before he re-aggravated that hamstring injury that kept him out the last month of the regular season. The MRI showed nothing structurally wrong with the hamstring, but... uh, bad news for the Nets, but they do have Kevin Durant, who had 29 points, 10 boards to go along with Kyrie Irving's 25 points to give the Nets a 115-107 game one win. Giannis Antetokounmpo, 34 points, 11 rebounds. That just seems to be his baseline, uh, really, for the Bucks. Game two, no James Harden, no problem for the Nets. They absolutely demolished the Bucks, 125-86. to Kevin Durant had 32 points. Kyrie Irving had 22 points in the win. And then, of course, Giannis, another double-double, 18 points, 11 rebounds for the Bucks in the loss. Now over in the Western Conference, the Utah Jazz, top-seeded Utah Jazz, played the number four-seed L.A. Clippers. I'm picking the Jazz to win the series in six games. Game one is all that's been played up to this point. And that showed us why Utah was the top overall seed in the Western Conference. They got 45 points from Donovan Mitchell uh, in the win, 112 to 109. Close game. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George both had over 20 points for the Clippers in the loss. Uh, but the Jazz currently lead 1 to nothing in that series. The other Western Conference series, the Phoenix Suns, number two seed, and the number three seed, Denver Nuggets. I'm picking the Suns to win in seven games. The Suns showed me enough in that first-round series. I like them to come out on top in this series. And uh, Phoenix took care of business in game one on their home court. They won 122-105. to Four of the five Suns starters had over 20 points, uh, led by DeAndre Ayton with 20 points, 10 rebounds. Devin Booker and Chris Paul chipped in with 21 points. And then on the flip side, Nikola Jokic, who uh, has since been named the NBA's MVP, league MVP for the regular season, Nikola Jokic, 
He averaged 26.4 points, 8.3 assists per game. He was the uh, NBA's MVP. He had 22 points for the Nuggets in the loss. But uh, the NBA is, uh, we got eight really good teams uh, in this final eight. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely uh, have some more news to talk about in the NBA playoffs. We'll get you caught up on next week's episode. But, uh, man, there's some good – this is going to be a very competitive conference finals and uh, NBA finals as well. So stay tuned on that. But we'll flip over to Major League Baseball, do a standings update there. Uh, every team has played uh, over 60 games, which – if you recall was the uh, total number of games played by the teams last season so we're playing a full 162 this season so we are more than a third of the way through the baseball season still plenty of baseball left but uh it's shaping up to be a good uh, good run here these last uh last two-thirds of the season we'll start off uh in the national league the nl east the new york mets 29 and 24 they are two and a half games up on the Atlanta Braves, who are at 29 and 29 on a three-game winning streak. Philadelphia Phillies, 28 and 31. Miami Marlins, 26 and 34. And the Washington Nationals. I can't believe that they're still in last place in the NL East, but they are. They're 24 and 33. They've only won three out of their last 10. Now, over in the National League Central, the Milwaukee Brewers have storm to the top. They're 34 and 26. They've won five in a row, nine out of their last 10, looking really good. The Chicago Cubs are just a half game back though, 34 and 27. St. Louis Cardinals, they're 31 and 30. They've lost six in a row. They've only won twice in their last 10, going the wrong direction. Cincinnati Reds, they're a pretty good team. Uh, They're 28 and 30. Jesse Winker, has turned into an absolute beast at the plate. He had a three-home run game this past week. The Pittsburgh Pirates are currently in last place in the NL Central at 23-36. and 36. Now over in the National League West, this has turned out to be probably the best division in baseball thus far. The San Francisco Giants are 38-22. and 22. They've won eight out of their last ten. San Diego Padres are 37-26. and 26. Los Angeles Dodgers are three games back of the Giants. They're 35 and 25. Colorado Rockies are 24 and 37. And the Arizona Diamondbacks, they've only won twice in their last 10. They are 20 and 42, which is good enough for last place in the entire league at the moment. So we'll flip over to the American League, the AL East, the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, they are 39-23, and 23, have a three-game winning streak going. The Boston Red Sox are 37-24, and 24, just a game and a half back of the Rays. The New York Yankees, they're five games back of Boston, six and a half games back of the Rays. They're 32-29, and 29, although they've only won three times in their last 10. The Toronto Blue Jays are 30-28. and 28. They're just a half game back of those Yankees. And the Baltimore Orioles, Uh, they're not the worst team in baseball, but close enough. They are last in the AL East at 22-38, and although they have played 500 baseball over their last 10. 
In the American League Central, the Chicago White Sox are still holding strong atop that division at 37-23. and 23. They've won seven out of their last ten. The Cleveland Indians are 32-26. and 26. They're four games back of the White Sox. Kansas City Royals, 29-30. and 30. Detroit Tigers, 25-35. and 35. And the Minnesota Twins are still at the bottom of the AL Central at 24-36. and 36. Again, another surprising team there at the bottom of their division. Now in the American League West, the Oakland A's, 36-26. and 26. The Houston Astros are just a game back of them at 34-26. and 26. This is pretty much... Uh, looking like it's going to be a two-team race for that division title because the Seattle Mariners at 30 and 32, they're five games back of the Astros, six games back of the A's. Los Angeles Angels, they've uh, won seven out of their last 10 to improve to 29 and 32. And then in the bottom of the American League West, my Texas Rangers, they, uh, they've won once in their last 10, They had a streak where they lost, uh, I think, 12 games in a row before finally winning. Uh, They're 23 and 39, just absolutely abysmal. Uh, It's it's not fun to be a Texas Rangers fan these days, but uh, we did not expect them to do anything other than what they are doing. So at least they are meeting expectations to this point. But again, like I said, plenty of baseball left. About two thirds of the regular season still left to be played. But uh, we're, we're getting a feel now for, for who's going to be in it at the end and who's probably already out of the playoff race. So uh, plenty of baseball left to talk about. No hit, we didn't have any no-hitters thrown this past week and a half or two, which means that we are due for uh, another one or two here in the next uh, coming week or so. But uh, plenty of baseball to get into on next week's episode as well. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island, and that is where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. We'll start off in the National Football League, and we are officially inside of 100 days until the NFL kicks off that Thursday night matchup in September uh, between the Dallas Cowboys and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think as I record this podcast, it's uh, roughly 90 three-ish days maybe until that happens, so we are getting close. Teams have already finished their rookie mini camps, and they are in the midst of their OTAs and their off-season practices right now, and uh, the NFL season is going to be here before we know it, which is awesome. Uh, Commissioner Goodell, you know, I mentioned uh, last week or the week before on the podcast that uh, there's only two NFL stadiums at the moment that have not opened to full capacity for, for fans in the stands, so uh, it's going to NFL is going to look as normal uh, as it used to this year, which is a fantastic sign. Another reason to get super excited about football. But the main news out of the NFL this week came to us via a trade, and that was between the Atlanta Falcons and the Tennessee Titans. Now, over the last month or month and a half, there's been a lot of rumblings of the Falcons trading All Pro wide receiver Julio Jones uh, after they drafted, you know, Kyle Pitts the phenom tight end with the fourth overall pick so here it is some six or seven weeks later and Julio Jones finally gets traded from the Atlanta Falcons to the Tennessee Titans now in addition to the Falcons sending Julio Jones they also sent a sixth round pick in uh, the 2023 draft and in exchange for that the Titans sent 
uh, a second round pick in this this next year's 2022 draft and a fourth round pick in that 2023 draft. So it's a pretty good trade both ways. Uh, they got the Titans were able to uh, they only gave up two picks a second this up year this upcoming year and a fourth the year after. Not bad considering they're getting a perennial Pro Bowl player in Julio Jones. Now he's not the Julio Jones that he was seven or eight years ago, but he is still. Uh, Julio Jones nonetheless and you pair him with A.J. Brown who made the Pro Bowl this past year and that is a fantastic duo of receivers and I think this trade at least puts Tennessee into that upper echelon tier of teams in the AFC. I don't quite think that Tennessee is on the level of Kansas City or Baltimore we'll say but I do believe that they are a top three or four team in the AFC. Now for you fantasy football people, Ryan Tannehill, quarterback for the Tennessee Titans, his value drastically increases. Uh, You add Julio Jones to go along with A.J. Brown and Derrick Henry, and that offense is going to be explosive. Tannehill can get you points with his legs as well. He's a decent runner of the football, but uh, I think Tannehill has, with this trade for Julio Jones, I think Tannehill becomes a top seven fantasy quarterback this year, but stay tuned on that. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League. And over the weekend, it was announced that the NHL had some conversations with the Canadian government regarding travel uh, for the Canadian teams in this next round because the conference finals are about to start in about a week, and there will be uh, one Canadian team in that. So uh, either the Montreal Canadiens or the Winnipeg Jets, looking like Montreal at the moment. But nonetheless, one of those two teams is going to have to travel back and forth between their home venue, and the United States. So the Canadian government authorized a travel exemption that is allowing them to uh, travel back and forth between Canada and the U.S. without any isolation restrictions. So players do not have to isolate for 14 days upon entering Canada, as everybody else has been. So at the moment, this is just an exemption that's given to the NHL, but uh, it's a great sign. Um, Current travel restriction for the U.S. and Canadian border is set to expire at the end of June. So if we can keep uh, if we can keep progressing forward like we have been, I do believe that the Canadian government will probably lift that restriction and open up travel to Canada for all uh, Americans. Now, side note, real quick: the Toronto Blue Jays uh, they are the only MLB team in Canada. They've been playing their home games uh, between Florida and Buffalo. They're currently in Buffalo right now, and they just announced that they're going to keep their home games in Buffalo for at least another month or so until the middle of July. So that'll give this uh, an order, you know, the border shutdown order, uh, another couple weeks to expire, and then uh, Toronto will probably move back to the uh, Rogers Center, their home stadium. But some other NHL news. This past week, according to uh, Sean Shapiro of The Athletic, uh, both the Seattle Kraken expansion draft and the 2021 NHL entry draft this summer will be aired on ESPN. Now, this announcement, of course, comes after the NHL and ESPN reached uh, a 10-year agreement for broadcasting rights uh, away from NBC and the NBC Sports Network. So uh, pretty cool that ESPN's getting back into the NHL Uh, We talked about that, I think, several podcasts ago, but both the expansion draft for the Kraken and the uh, NHL entry draft are going to be aired on ESPN. Now, speaking of the NHL entry draft, 
this past week, the NHL held their annual draft lottery, uh, which, you know, I've, if you recall, I don't know how many episodes ago, it's been a while, probably a year or so ago, um, not quite a year, but uh, la- but right before last year's NHL draft lottery, I kind of talked about how the process works and how it's a big farce with the way the NHL does it, but uh, and, and I still kind of feel, I mean, I obviously still feel that way regarding this, but I, here are the results for the NHL's uh, top 15 picks in the uh, NHL draft after the lottery was completed. The top overall pick belongs to the Buffalo Sabres. Second overall pick belongs to the Seattle Kraken, the new expansion team. Third, Anaheim Ducks. Fourth pick, the New Jersey Devils. Fifth pick, the Columbus Blue Jackets. Sixth pick, the Detroit Red Wings. Seventh pick, San Jose Sharks. Eighth pick, Los Angeles Kings. Ninth pick, Vancouver Canucks. Tenth pick, Ottawa Senators. Eleventh pick, Chicago Blackhawks. Twelfth pick, Calgary Flames. Thirteenth pick, Philadelphia Flyers. Fourteenth pick, Dallas Stars. And 15th pick, the New York Rangers. Now, Buffalo was absolutely horrid this year, so I don't have an issue with them getting the first overall pick. But I do have an issue with, in a normal year, uh, I do have an issue with them getting the first overall pick over the Seattle Kraken. I think for expansion years, the expansion team should get the top overall pick, and then you proceed with your lottery results after that. So at least Seattle didn't slide too far down. They have the second pick, but uh, Buffalo is obviously a terrible team, and they could certainly use the first overall pick as well. But we'll move over to the National Basketball Association, and immediately after the first-round series lost to the Brooklyn Nets, the Boston Celtics uh, they announced that uh, Danny Ainge, who is the president of basketball operations for the Boston Celtics, would be stepping down from that role, and that current head coach Brad Stevens is going to be promoted to that role of president of basketball operations, which means the Celtics now have a head coaching vacancy, and they announced that they're going to be starting their search for a new head coach very soon. And that just kind of triggered two more coaching announcements. The first, uh, or the second one, I guess, came to us from the Portland Trailblazers. They announced that they are going to be parting ways with head coach Terry Stotts. Uh, Now, Jason Kidd was rumored to be interested in this coaching job, but he has since confirmed that he will not be putting his name in for that job. So I would expect the Trailblazers to have quite a bit of shakeup with their roster this offseason. They're going to have a new coach. I would suspect that Damian Lillard and or C.J. McCollum, one of those two, will not be on the Trailblazers next year. If I had to pick, I would say Dame Lillard. But uh, I would expect Portland to look much different uh, from coach all the way down to bench players uh, this upcoming season. The final NBA team to announce a coaching vacancy is the Orlando Magic. They announced that they and head coach Steve Clifford have agreed to part ways in what was described as a mutual decision. Now, the Magic are a youthful team. They're, they have a lot of good young players, uh, and they can they will probably end up making some noise here in the next two to three seasons. Uh, they, they got rid of some talent at the trade deadline, uh, that uh, had them acquire some more young talent. But um, Magic aren't going anywhere anytime soon. That's going to be a few years before they're relevant, but uh, they are looking for a new head coach as well. Now from the NBA over to the NCAA basketball, 
legendary Duke head coach Mike Krzyzewski announced that this upcoming 2021-2022 season is going to be his last as a coach. And Coach K announced his retirement effective at the end of this upcoming season. So he still has one more year left. Duke officials have already listed John Shire as the coach in waiting to replace Coach K. Now, Coach Krzyzewski has 1,170 wins as it sits right now, which is the most wins all time in either men's or women's college basketball. Uh, He's got five national titles. He's made 12 Final Four appearances, 15 ACC tournament titles, and 15 30-win seasons. That's just absolutely outrageous. Um, He's the very best college basketball coach to ever coach, and uh, hopefully Duke can send him out the right way with another either national championship or some kind of Final Four appearance. But the last piece of news in Around the Island deals with uh, IndyCar racing. About a week and a half ago, the Indianapolis 500 was ran, and your winner was the ageless Elio Castroneves, who joined Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson in proving that age or old age is just a number. Of course, Brady is your Super Bowl champion this past year, and Phil Mickelson just won the PGA Championship at 50 years old. Uh, This is Elio Castroneves' fourth win at the Indy 500, making him just the fourth IndyCar driver to win that race four times. Now, the biggest piece of news from the Indy 500 is the fact that this race was the largest sporting event in the world since the pandemic began. There were 135,000 fans in attendance for this thing, which is absolutely awesome. Again, another sign that we are coming back to life here with sports and fans being able to attend in person. Uh, We're going to have the NFL stadiums filled up uh, at capacity this season. And of course, as you've seen in Major League Baseball, there's a lot of of ballparks letting fans in uh, in higher numbers this season as well. So that is good news as we move forward. But that's going to wrap up the 43rd episode of the Sports Island Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed that. Uh, we got another busy week ahead of us as we wrap up the second round series in both the NHL and the NBA. And uh, so we'll have plenty of news to talk about on next week's episode as well. But uh, until then, stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.